all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. Hello, Mississippi. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, and you're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. It's a weekly doctor, all things considered, call-in show just for you. Whatever your questions are, we'll do our very best to answer them. So give us a call at 1-877-672-7464. And I have a special guest who is the director of the new cancer center at uh, UMC that we'll also interview and make available to you. But it's whatever you want to talk about, give us a call or send us an email at MPB on Southern Remedy at mpbonline.org. We're going to be right back after the news and we want to hear from you. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. An investigation is underway into the death of former New England Patriots tight end Aaron Hernandez. He was found dead in his prison cell early this morning. He was serving a life sentence for murder. New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady is sitting out the team's Super Bowl celebration at the White House today. NPR's Scott Horsley reports that event is expected to go forward despite Hernandez's death. Tom Brady had been expected to attend the victory party hosted by President Trump, but changed his plan, citing personal family matters. Brady said in a statement he's happy and excited the team is being honored at the White House. The Patriots won the Super Bowl in a remarkable comeback after falling 25 points behind the Atlanta Falcons. Brady, like Patriots coach Bill Belichick and team owner Robert Kraft, is a longtime friend of the president's. He thanked Trump for supporting the Patriots and hosting today's celebration. Half a dozen other Patriot players are boycotting the event. Some have said they don't feel welcome in the White House so long as Trump is president. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Republican chairman of the powerful House Oversight and Government Reform Committee will not seek re-election to Congress in 2018. Today, Representative Jason Chaffetz of Utah announced his plans, reminding supporters of his mantra to get in, serve, and get out. Chaffetz says he may run for public office again, just not next year. His decision opens the way for another political race in which Democrats attempt to flip a Republican-held seat. The congressional race in Georgia that's widely viewed as a referendum on President Trump's first 100 days in office is headed to a runoff. Democrat John Ossoff faces Republican Karen Handel June 20th. They're competing for the sixth congressional seat vacated by Republican Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price. The 30-year-old Ossoff, a former congressional staffer, was a few percentage points short of a clear victory in a field of 18 candidates. Handel, a former Georgia Secretary of State, finished a distant second. A state senator from Miami delivered an apology today in the Florida Capitol for using racial slurs in a conversation with two African-American colleagues Monday night. 
NPR's Greg Allen reports Florida Democrats have called for his resignation. Republican Frank Artiles made his comments in a private conversation with African-American Democratic Senators Audrey Gibson and Perry Thurston. Artiles insulted Gibson using an obscenity and later in the conversation used a racial slur in referring to other members of the Senate. Florida's Democratic Party called on Artiles to resign. In a public apology on the Senate floor today, Artiles had this explanation for his use of a racial slur. I grew up in a diverse community. We share each other's customs, cultures, and vernacular. I realize that my position does not allow me for the looseness of words or slang. Florida Senate President today responded by stripping Artiles of his committee chairmanship. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. This is NPR. Citing a decline in consumer demand since President Trump took office, the airline Emirates plans to reduce flights connecting Dubai and other global sites to nearly half of the dozen U.S. cities it serves. Starting May 1st, the flight schedule will be scaled back in major travel hubs, including Orlando, Boston, Seattle, and Los Angeles. In a statement today, the Emirates Airlines says it has experienced a significant drop in booked flights to the U.S. in part due to tighter U.S. visa restrictions and security vetting, as well as measures preventing passengers from carrying certain electronic devices on the plane with them. Zambia's main opposition leader is defending himself in court against charges that he plotted to overthrow the government. NPR's Afabia Quistarkton reports Hakainde Hichilema is accused of committing treason after allegedly obstructing the president's motorcade with his own convoy. Failed Zambian presidential candidate Hakainde Hichilema is in trouble. The opposition leader has been in detention since last week, linked to an incident when his convoy reportedly refused to give way to President Edgar Lungu's motorcade. When Hichilema was arrested, his lawyer said the politician was being held on treasonable charges, for which he added there was no bail in Zambian jurisprudence. The lawyer said in court Tuesday that aides of Hichilema were tortured on their private parts after their arrest with him. Hichilema's wife earlier told journalists the security forces had stormed into their home in the middle of the night after manhandling their staff. Ophelia Quistarkton, NPR News, Dakar. The Dow is down 53 points at last glance. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from Blue Vine, offering businesses revolving lines of credit to help them grow and expand. Credit lines up to $100,000. Small business credit help is available at BlueVine.com and Americans for the Arts at AmericansfortheArts.org. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Hello, Mississippi. This is Dr. Rick again, and I'm welcoming you back to Southern Remedy, the original Southern Remedy, the old one. It's been going on since Katrina, and it's all things considered on this particular program. Uh, That is, whatever you want to talk about is legit, and we'll take your questions. So we're at 1-877-672-7464. Now, reproducibly, what happens is, is that all the lines stay open for the first few minutes, and then they all plug up at the end of the program. So if you have something that you need to pull over your car or truck or ask us, now is a 100% hit 
because all of our lines are open. For those of you who are listening on Sunday morning, we'd love to take your emails, and we do take those. If you'll send us an email at southernremedy at mpbonline.org, we certainly will respond to that. And frequently, we're able to give you some patient information. So all things considered today, give us a call at one 672 I'm also really, really pleased to have a, a special guest who is an internist, so he can talk about anything like, well, talk about it. We all talk about everything. Uh, and uh, But he's also uh, an internationally known cancer specialist who has been the director of the Moffitt Cancer Center in Florida that you've heard about, the number two one in the country size-wise, the Carbano Center up in Detroit. So some of you guys with Detroit connections will know about that great center and is here to take our uh, University of Mississippi Cancer Center to the next level. And uh, let me tell you, there's some good things happening but he is a, a, um, a specialist in lung cancer, and so much has happened in that area that I thought we'd get him on in case someone is dealing with that and wants to talk about it. So that's, and you can call him Dr. Ruck and call me Dr. Rick, Dr. Rick and Dr. Ruck. His name is Ruck DeShell. Uh, that, that is a, um, that is a old English name. Is that correct? German. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so how far back do you go? Do you know? Uh, actually, I've, I've worked on our, our family tree. I'm back to about the 1600s on my father's side, and to um, probably the late 1500s on my mother's side. So, do you have uh, royalty in your uh, line, or might might line a lot of hard work in uh, laborers? Uh, a lot of hard work in laborers, mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, that's why you're a doctor. You were trying to climb out of there somewhere or something. Your genes are programmed to work hard. So we're so glad to have you in Mississippi. And uh, I wanted to ask you, I'm see- we're seeing all these ads about lung cancer medicines. And by the way, if you want to talk about lung cancer or anything else, give us a call at one 672 All our lines are open, and we'd love to talk to you about whatever's ailing you or whatever you're wondering about. So I'm seeing all these ads on TV uh, with this lady who comes on with her family, and she says, I had, uh, uh, I was told I was going to die from my lung cancer, and I had all these treatments, and then they did this. I found out I was something, 3429 positive, and got this new medicine, and talked to your doctor about it. What's all that about? Well, this is a real change uh, nowadays. I've been doing lung cancer for almost 40 years, and really only in the last few years have we developed what's called personalized therapy. We look at everybody's cancer, not just under the microscope the way we used to, but now we look at it genetically. We can sequence the genetic changes. If they have certain changes, uh, what we call biomarkers, uh, then they get certain medications. If they don't have those biomarkers, and they get different medications. So if you are so-called biomarker positive, and there are about 20 of them, so we don't have to go through that. The one on TV is just one of them. Um, You will likely uh, respond uh, to that treatment much better than with standard therapy. And nowadays we're seeing what we call a tail on the curve. So instead of changing survival by six months for $6 million, we actually are seeing people alive many years out. 
Wow, because um, I remember my dad was a World War II uh, uh, generation uh, person who was given free cigarettes for, uh, you know, service, and uh, he became addicted to nicotine and ended up dying of a tobacco-related disease. He was fortunate, I think. He died of a heart attack rather than getting lung cancer. It was a quicker demise. Uh, but still an awful thing because I was 13 years old and uh, my mom was working mom and here we were stuck in a middle class neighborhood in, in Birmingham and didn't have any money and uh, it was rough because dad was gone and uh, and now we still have people who are smoking but we also have people, a subset of people, uh, by the way, who have have it who are not smokers so let's go to sharon and mobile if you want to give us a call at one 672 it's anything you want to talk about we're going to talk about lung cancer we're going to talk about toenail fungus whatever you need to know give us a call but i've got this special guest dr ruck Deshell, and you can call him call me dr rick and him dr ruck or whatever you know meets your fancy uh, and he is a fantastic resource for us in Mississippi on all kinds of cancer and is a super specialist in lung cancer. Hey, Sharon, what's what's going on? Hey, I just wanted to get some information about uh, how much more common uh, lung cancer is in the non-smoking population and wanted to know if you could comment and give us some reasons why that is. Yeah, and I was uh, I was just bringing that up when you called and popped up on the screen here, so I really appreciate it. I have a very, very close uh, friend, a woman, <clears throat> who lived with a non-smoking man and ended up with lung cancer. Now, this is a woman who went to church every Sunday, you know, did all the right things, and bam, she ends up with this lung cancer. Well, so what's the story on that? Besides, there ain't no justice in this life. What, what is the story? Well, it's pretty clear that people can get any cancer. That there's that's the lack of justice, if you will, uh, argument. Um, and there always was a background noise of lung cancer before people started smoking heavily. And uh, the the problem with this is we th- we think it's a little bit more common now. But if you look at a hundred lung cancers. Only five of them may be in people who were non-smokers. And then I think you have to parse that a little bit more closely because people will say they're non-smokers, but they've either lived with a smoker, they smoked for 30 years, stopped last week and called themselves a non-smoker, or they worked in an environment where there was smoke. So if people work in a restaurant or a bar where there's smoke around them all the time, they're inhaling smoke on a regular basis. Okay. Well, speak to Sharon's specific question, and that was, what about if they're they don't have any of that? What what is that? Just a spontaneous cancer that 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 background noise, and do they have a worse or better prognosis than people who uh, did smoke? Actually, most of the cases are in women, and uh, women in general have a better prognosis with lung cancer. So a Young, yeah, and they tend to be younger. So it would be a younger woman, non-smoker, uh, with one of these lung cancers, tends to do strikingly better than your traditional older 65 or so patient 
who's been smoking for 40 years and who's got cardiac disease, lung disease. Do they get the same uh, workup now with your interdisciplinary team? Do they get all the genetic studies and all that stuff? What is the, just real quickly, because I want to go to Oxford and Jackson and your call, if you call us at 1-877-672-7464 or send us an email at mpbonline.org. If you, if somebody uh, gets a routine chest X-ray, and you have what looks like it could be a cancer. What is a routine workup? Do you have to have your chest opened, or what? 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 How bad is the workup? It, workup is actually uh, a pretty easy, and it's been shortened nowadays. Uh, we usually go right to a CAT scan and then to a PET scan, which is sort of a radioactive sugar that helps us pick up where the cancer is. And if we know it's widespread, you don't need a big operation. If it's very localized, then we get you right to the operation. And you can do um, you can do minimally invasive surgery now to get a you got to have a piece of it right. That's correct. In order to and you said individualized therapy, you have to do all these special studies on there to figure out exactly what the genetic makeup of the thing is and so forth. And then you taper your therapy to that. Is that correct? Or That's I, correct. So you're going to get a biopsy. But sometimes it's a needle biopsy or just a little bitty cut. Uh, endoscopic? Yes. The, the the question for us is, what's the easiest place for us to get tissue? We'll go there. Right. All right. So that's kind of started. Uh, Sharon, are you still on the phone? I am. I'm not I sure am. you got all you wanted. Is there yes, anything yes. else? That was great. Thank you so all much. All right. And thank you for your call. And we love Mobile. Yes. Thank you. We love you. Uh, all right. Another place we love is Oxford. And we've got Karen. Karen, what's your comment? Karen, you there? Yes, I'm here. Love um, to hear from you. What's going on? Hi. Uh, my son was diagnosed recently with histoplasmosis. Mm-hmm. And just wanted to get your comments on how common that is and if that's something that's going to affect him long term. Um, appreciate the show. I enjoy listening. I'm going to hang up and listen. Thank okay. You. Very, very good. Histoplasmosis is a very common fungal infection. Uh, especially if you live anywhere near chicken houses. And if you live in Mississippi, you live near chicken houses because birds are carriers of this fungus. Most people never know they have it. We have an oncologist here who sees evidence of it all the time because the spleen is full of little uh, calcified nodules. 99% of people control it uh, and think they have a flu or a cold or something and never have a problem. A small number of people get pneumonia with it, and a very, very small number of people, usually people on chemotherapy or other problems, embryo, I have seen several cases pop up as probably reactivation of an old uh, controlled uh, episode of this fungus infection. What happens is the body recognizes it and encapsulates it and locks it up. And most of the time it kills it off, but sometimes there's still some that can come back if you're on chemotherapy or so forth. And we always look for evidence of a previous TB infection or fungal infection before we start those immunomodulatory therapies. And I'm going to let uh, ask Dr. Ruck Nichel to comment on that. But uh, so far as your son is concerned, if he's well now, he's, he's probably well. The big thing is to check his eyes because the stuff can get in the eyes, and he should have had an eye check. And then other than that, if everything's okay, he should be 
good to go and just have his regular checkups after that. And I hope that's helpful. You're at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're going to Jackson in your house. We have two open lines. If you'll give us a call, it's all things considered. My special guest today is a cancer expert, Dr. Ruckshell, the the director of the uh, UMC Cancer Institute, and we're very fortunate to have someone who has directed two other ma- major cancer institutes, including the Moffitt Center in Florida, before coming here. So you deal with this concern about fungus all the time, right? Yeah, I think the main issue with mm-hmm. it that we see nowadays uh, is it leaves little scars in the lung as well. And so when people get a chest X-ray or they have a car accident and they get X-rays, somebody spots a nodule, and unless people are thoughtful about it, they wind up having all sorts of unnecessary tests. Yeah, and we I want to talk to you if we get a chance or get a call on this, and would you please call us and ask us this where we can talk about it because this is your show and you control it. Um, this recommendation that smokers get CTs, uh, CAT scans of their chest looking for cancers, I want to talk to you about that if somebody will uh, stimulate me because uh, I have strong feelings on both sides of that issue <laughs> and, and would like to hear your comments. Let's go to Frank and Jackson. Hey, Frank. Frank, it's your time. Hey, how you doing, guys? We're good. Did you call? Thank you. Going way back, um, I've come across something, SV40, simian virus 40. Mm-hmm. That came out when they were doing the vaccines, the polio vaccines, with the oral vaccine and the injectable vaccine. And all of this cancer explosion was predicted way back then because they were using simian monkey organs to grow the uh, vaccines. Right. They went ahead and started using human organs in the terms of aborted fetuses uh, to come up with... um, uh, vaccines after that because they said why use animals let's use humans and there's been an explosion of anti or autoimmune diseases behind that as well mm-hmm. okay i think you've been listening to fox news a lot um so this is uh th- th- frank is expressing some of the information that has been put out by the anti-vaccine people about all the risk of vaccines and it's a legitimate set of questions. We've had a whole series of infectious disease experts and other people up here trying to explain why in the great majority of people these vaccines are perfectly safe. As someone who goes to every, every cancer meeting in the universe every year to keep up uh, with what's going on not only in the U.S. and internationally, what is the latest on the connection between using vaccines and cancer <clears throat> yeah there seems to be a very little connection with uh, sv40 or simian virus 40 uh, it only contaminated the injectable uh, uh vaccine the original one which i actually received in the 1950s me too and uh we did find it and there was a flurry of interest in it uh, surrounding mesothelioma the asbestos related cancer there seemed to be evidence of that virus in the cancer. There was some thought it might be related. That was tracked down pretty hard, and there's just no clear evidence for that. So, you know, we just don't know enough about what these viruses do uh, long-term to say that something isn't sitting there in our genetic material that's brought out by something else. But as a direct 
you get this vaccine, you get cancer. There's virtually that not virtually there is absolutely no evidence for that. So um, uh, what what I think I heard you say is that the that there there was some smoke about this simian virus and they never confirmed it. But to clean it up, they went with a different substrate to grow this organism for vaccines. Was that polio? Was that what it was? Yeah, actually, I think the polio was was done, um, moved to another uh, tissue culture because it was easier to do. Simeon, it was monkey monkey kidney cells that Mm. they were using, and it was just a a hard uh, uh, procedure to do it. So they didn't know anything about the. They didn't even know the SV40 virus existed when those when those uh, things were being made I, I don't know anything about any vir- any of our vaccines using aborted uh tissues I wor- do you know anything about that i first of all in my sense is it's illegal anywhere yeah, right. in the country but so certainly none of the ones that we have commercially available to us uh would do that yeah yeah so uh frank relax uh this is not a, an issue there's a lot of science behind it. Uh, we have just about as uh, high a level of confidence about that as we have about anything in medicine. So the the risk-benefit ratio of getting vaccines, and I don't want to get off on vaccines again because we spent hours on that, uh, is way in favor of getting your vaccines. But I'll talk about it if you call us at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send us an email at mpbonline.org. We have two open lines. This is your chance to get in before everybody else calls. So give us a call. We've got an expert here, and we're taking calls on anything you want to talk about. Let's go to Joe in Brookhaven. Hey, Joe. Yeah, look, I was diagnosed with CLL. I mean, I hope I got it right. A chronic lymphocytic uh, leukemia. Chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Yes, man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And right now, they said if you this if you were going to get leukemia, that's the one you get. Absolutely. Okay. Right now, I'm not being treated, but I know sooner or later one day going to come. So, I thought about exercise. Would it be good for me to really exercise? Try to get myself in pretty good shape. All right. So, Joe I mean, is I'm not in bad, bad shape now. But right. I could, I can do better. So are you a smoker? No, sir. Good. And so you've been in pretty good health, and they just picked this up on a blood count. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. So this seems to be, uh, Dr. Ruckshell, the the classic question that my primary care patients ask me when they've been diagnosed with any kind of cancer, uh, they, they start looking around for nutraceuticals, Exercise, which is always good for everything, certainly for your depression that many people get when they find out they've got a cancer. And I always tell people if they're not a little bit depressed when they find they got a cancer, they're probably crazy. But that's another discussion. Uh, And so what is there anything you can do, A, to prevent cancer? And I know there's some answers there. And number two, what can you do if you get a cancer to survive it yourself? Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, you know, the main issue is there is no simple diet. There is no exercise regimen that will prevent cancer in general. So the exercise piece is what makes you feel better during it and makes you better able to get through the therapy. With CLL, you you may go decades before they have to do anything. So yeah, that's just 10-year intervals. Right. So yeah. you just, you know, they'll watch your blood counts. If they start to get down or you get tired in there, 
They can start, you know, oral therapy. It's really fairly easy to treat. And many people don't need treatment at all. So, And many people die of other things, right? right? So what you want to do with your exercise is make sure you're not going to drop over from a heart attack or or, or osteoporosis, uh, thin bones, et cetera. Those are all positive things to do. But in, in general, you know, we used to have a big thing about uh, half of all cancers were caused by what we eat. And, you know, the, the science for that is not there anymore. I mean, it, it's it's a mixture of what we're exposed to and what our genes are. And you can be exposed to something, and if, you've, if you haven't got the wrong gene, you're not going to have a problem with it. And hmm. So I, I, I think it's it's a little bit more uh, difficult than that. I, you know, I've been through it in my own family. My uh, mom died when I was in my 20s, and uh, my dad drag, dragged her off to Mexico for uh, uh, the apricot pits yeah. that were, mm-hmm. uh, were big at the time. And, and, you know, all that did was give her a blood clot in her leg, and it wasn't, wasn't very pleasant. So, yeah. um I don't think that there is any evidence that these work. What we're looking for are some of these compounds, and some of this is work we're doing with the Natural Product Center, where you get a much more specific response. You know there's a specific problem with a genetic pathway or a metabolic pathway, and you can interfere with that. That may be helpful, but we don't have good proof of it. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is that since we have this resource up in Oxford, uh, the center of all knowledge for the universe, um, <laughs> the uh, the uh, um, University of Mississippi uh, Natural Product Center that actually specializes in developing um, all kinds of antibacterials and anti-cancer therapies and others from plant sources that y'all are actually collaborating and looking on some things that might be helpful. Is yes. that what you're saying? Yes, indeed. That's what cancer centers do, right? That's right. All right. So that's, uh, I hope that answered your question, but being fit and avoiding smoke and smokers uh, would be a, a good idea for anybody, for sure. It's a shame to get, you know, cured of a cancer and then die of a heart attack. That would be a bad thing. Let's go to Tupelo and Daryl. Hey, Daryl. Daryl, you're on the air. Hey, guys. Hi. I just had a question. Uh, my dad, he grew up in the 50s and 60s, was in the military, and he smoked. Well, in 1975, he quit smoking completely. And then for 32 years, he was fine, but then he developed uh, small cell lung cancer. So my question is, was that cancer in him all the time, or did it just take that long to develop? Good question. Uh, that is a good question. And we'll answer your question if you give us a call at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. What did your dad do after he stopped smoking? Was he still in a workplace environment where people smoked? Were people smoking around the house, relatives and stuff? No, no. Uh, uh, he was the only one that smoked. And uh, he did work in a factory uh, where there was some uh, metallic dust. But uh, mm-hmm. other than that, he, he wasn't. He couldn't stand to be around anybody that smoked after that. Yeah, that's that's the usual, and that's a good thing. Um, what we know about lung cancer is that it's the a sequence of about 100 different mutations before we actually have a cancer. If we look at a cancer cell, it's got 100 different things wrong with it that shouldn't have been there. And it may well be, I would I would guess in your dad's instance, that he had 90 of those or 85 of those from his time smoking in the military, and the cells were there, they were abnormal but not malignant, and then he added to it at a slower rate with his exposure to dust uh, in that workplace environment, and eventually he hit the 100 mutations that, that set his off. That would be my guess. No so, way to prove it 
per you know per person, but I think that's the best explanation. So another thing that uh, Daryl mentioned was non-small cell and small cell cancer. What's the difference? Um, one's big, one's no. It's, uh, <laughs> the uh, the difference is an old one. It's a it's a convenient thing that we keep around now. Um, we used to have small cell cancers, which grew very rapidly but responded great to therapy. Uh, 30 years ago, everybody thought that's the one we were going to cure first. And literally since then, we've had not a single change in, in therapy for small cell. Non-small cell, where we have sliced and diced this until we understand all the various subsets, we're now seeing dramatic changes in, in survival. Yeah, dramatic changes in lung cancer used to be two months for $100,000. And you told me earlier that uh, I'm a little bit antiquated in that approach as a generalist. You are. It still costs a hundred thousand, but uh, but there are people that are alive for many years. I mean, I had a patient who I took care of in Detroit uh, eight or nine years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, sent me an email about a year ago and says, "Listen, you told me I wasn't going to make it uh, all those years ago, but we so tried there. it." So there. And he said, "Here I am. I'm leaving Detroit. I'm going to Denver, and I'm going to enjoy the rest of my life." Well, that's that's a blessing. Well, the doctors don't really do very well. Um, forecasting or predicting when people are going to die of anything, do we? No. uh, (laughs) There's somebody else in charge of that. (laughs) That's right. That's right. All right, Daryl. I hope that answered your question. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics, your host, here with the director, professor and director of our UMC uh, Cancer Center uh, Institute. Mm. A really, really big thing. And uh, I brought him up because he's just n- pretty much new in town. And uh, certainly I had heard his name from his previous uh, accomplishments. So we're very happy to have him. And he's put together uh, what he calls interdisciplinary teams so that if you have this kind of cancer, you go to this group that has a radiologist. And what else do you have in those groups? The surgeon, the radiotherapist, the medical oncologist. You might need a gastroenterologist or a pulmonary, whatever you need for that disease. And he forces them. He has this big stick in his office. He forces them to communicate because otherwise doctors don't communicate well. Is that true? Amen. Yeah, yeah. So he has people who, when you come into that program, and some of the other cancer centers he's established have similar arrangements. Thank God he's bringing that to Mississippi. Uh he has them all in a room. He has these meetings, right? How does yes. that work? Well, what what we do and what most cancer centers do, and it's, and it's something we can only do by our size, is we discuss all of our cases prospectively. So before we embark on a course of therapy, everybody's involved, takes care of it. Now, sometimes that doesn't matter. The course is pretty well set, but there's a lot of times where there's some differences about what to do, and it's better to have everybody in the room at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do that now. Most places don't, don't have that luxury. People don't understand that. Yeah. Uh, and they don't understand that the radiation oncologists have their studies that they don't include the medical oncologist on and vice versa. Then you have the surgeons running their studies and they all claim these levels of benefit. And uh, and sometimes it's it's sort of hard to decide which therapy you should use. So you put all these people in hot box them and make them and then make a decision on the basis of the best information. Is that is that it? Yes, it's not just the information, it's what the patient's preference is. Ah. 
you can say that for prostate cancer, this particular operation is the best thing to do. But if it results in changes in sexual function or urinary function that are unacceptable, you're there not you going to do it. There you go. All right. So you actually include the patient in the discussion. Well, they're not How in the room, but the doctor who who goes. Well, they somebody go. has to have seen the patient before they're presented. Right. And they are included in the process because yes. you have this missive that goes back and tells what the recommendation is. Let's go to Meridian and Michelle. Hey, Michelle. Good morning. Thank you for your call. What's going on? Thank you. Well, um, I have had three uncles who passed away from pancreatic cancer yes. and wanted to know uh, if there's a hereditary component of that and is there any treatment that's been successful with the treatment of pancreatic cancer and uh, what what can be done? Okay. Thank you for that question. Yeah, the, it... Is it is it genetic or not? It likely is genetic, um, and the issue here is that most of the genetic cancers, we don't know what the gene is. We know it like lung cancer. We know it in pancreatic cancer. We know it runs in families, but we haven't got the gene. Some we do. Breast cancer, the BRCA1 gene, uh, uh, several of the other diseases like that. We actually have the gene. In, in pancreatic, we don't. Uh, but I would be concerned uh, with that many people within the family and um, would keep a close watch on that, whether you did an ultrasound or at least let your internist be aware of it so they're keeping an eye on you. I do ultrasounds and fight with the insurance companies about this fairly frequently uh, on f- people that have two or three relatives, especially if they're first degree, <clears throat> uh, you know, close by, uh, close relatives. I will get ultras- order ultrasounds every other year. And they say that's too much, and I have no data. So we're telling people to go ask their doctor about ultrasounds. What, what's, your, what's your advice? I know there's no real hard data on this, or is there? Uh, there isn't hard data. I know when my mom died of uh, kidney cancer uh, many years ago, about 20 years later, um, it became apparent that kidney cancer could be that way. And first thing I did was get my ultrasound, and then we determined we we found her tissue that it wasn't that kind so uh-huh. the the thing about your uncles here and, and your own particular risk is how close they are so if it was your your mom your dad brother sister that's a little bit more important than the the level of uncles and aunts out there so for your mm-hmm. own personal risk okay all right so michelle i think what the message is here is talk this over with your primary care doctor and if you're concerned about it an ultrasound doesn't have any risk, and okay. they can look for holes and places in your pancreas. And and uh, most internists will do everything they can to get that for you uh, if and, that's bothering you. Okay. And what if they what if they discover that you do have pancreatic cancer? What are the treatments? That's not the problem. The yeah. problem is if they discover something that looks like pancreatic cancer and uh-huh. isn't, and then start doing stuff to you. Am I right? Yeah, I, I, but I think what you want to do, if you find it early, then surgery or radiation will be very helpful. If it's if it's progressed beyond that and it's spread, it's still one of the most difficult cancers we have. So if it's gotten early and it's in the right place, you can just chop the thing in half and or take it out, whatever is necessary. Usually we take it out. Yeah, and uh, and then you can live with some supplements to help replace what's missing. Right. Yes. I have a doctor friend who lived with pancreatic cancer for 30 years after it was found and was just as mean after his 
surgery as he was before. So it's a long story. Okay, thank you for your call, Michelle. We appreciate it, and I hope that's useful. If not, send us an email at southernremedympbonline.org, and I'll send you some more information about pancreatic cancer. We thank you for your call. This is All Things Considered on uh, Southern Remedy. Let's go to Mobile and Mikey. Hey, Mikey. Oh, y'all just scared the daylights out of me. Um, <laughs> well, let's see if we can fix it. That is not what we're trying to do here. I know. No, no. I mean, uh, 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 no, sir. I don't mean it in that sense. Um, uh, I mean, everyone is different. Every family is different. Every person is different. Right. Um, and I have some of this history that you're, you just mentioned, and that's why. <laughs> Yeah. That's why I made that comment. Well, it's um, a good co- it's a good comment. I'll, I'll just tell you, if I told you my family history about cancer, it really would scare you, because I have it all over the place in mine. And our guest, who's a who's an oncologist, has it. All right, so we we have the same kind of concerns that you do. I mean, this these are not unreasonable concerns, and if you have a very high risk for cancer in your a lot of people cancer in your family, you know, you do some things because because of that. First of all, you go to church a lot. But that's another thing. Second thing you do is you get advanced directives. You plan, uh, talk it over with your family. Say, I don't. There's nothing wrong with me, but I just want you to know if something develops, I plan for it, and I have a will and advance directives and all that stuff. So, uh, Mikey, this is not an unreasonable thing to talk about. What's your point? Uh, well, first of all, yeah, you just answered a whole bunch of other questions. As usual, Dr. Oh, Ralph, thank you. be so smart, you know, <laughs> um, uh, and, and so kind and patient, and your guests also. Um, uh, yeah, heredity playing a point. Um, addiction um, uh, also with combined with heredity um can you please advise on okay that? are you talking about narcotic addiction or what kind of addiction or any I addiction a family full of it, all of it just like everybody else uh-huh. okay the mixture of alcohol pot uh heroin whatever they can get their hands on that's not uncommon okay what about that because some people a lot of people get hepatitis c and that's one i know that causes cancer I don't think there's any relationship, and let me make sure, Mikey, I have your question right. I, there's no relationship that we know of to developing cancer after the addictions unless there's alcohol use and hepatitis C, something that damages the liver. The rest of it, though, is if your question was, does the tendency to addiction run in families? And that answer is yes. Um, you know, there are lots of people can have drinks. It's not a problem. Some people can light up a cigarette or two. It's not a problem. But most people get into trouble with these when they use them too much, and that tends to run in families. So we do see addictive addictive behaviors, and the results of addiction run right through families. And another reason you don't want that, by the way, 10% of people who use pot get addicted. Uh, it's called cannabis use disorder. One of the things that addiction plays in in your business that I've seen play out in some of my patients that I've sent your way uh, or if they're going to get a bone marrow transplant or some of these other therapies, they have to have dependability in taking their medicines and not doing stupid stuff uh, like not, you know, not calling you when they get a fever and stuff like that. Does that figure into who gets what therapy? 
Yeah, I think there's a generic level for the standard therapies of, of responsibility because these things are not harmless. They can cause problems. Uh, things like bone marrow transplant mm. or major, major surgeries, that's a whole new level of risk. And they we go through a much more rigorous screening process for that. Yeah. So your behavior does determine sometimes what you get when. So it's not discrimination. It's data data-driven. Thank you for your call. It's always good to hear from Mobile, one of my favorite places. Another favorite place is Tupelo. Hey, Matt, what's happening up there? Besides y'all getting a lot of new factories and stuff. You there, Matt? Hi. Hey. Um, yeah, y'all mentioned earlier uh, in response to another caller uh, about how working in a factory and inhaling uh, flag dust might have contributed, along with smoking, to uh, his developing lung cancer. Um, I work in the factory as well, and I'm around all that stuff. I was just wondering if you could go into a little more detail with that and maybe a time frame to develop problems. Sure. Uh, it happens over many years, first of all. It's not a walk-in, catch it, and you know, go home the next day. It's something that takes many years. What kind of factory? There's not every kind of factory, right? Uh, we no, uh, no, I'm, I'm auto parts. Okay, but it's that's what I'm asking dust, you, Dr. Rock. Where there's chronic dust exposure. It's dust, factories with dust. Right. Cotton dust. Beryllium, nickel, uh, coal dust, any any of these areas where there's a chronic dust exposure okay. on a regular basis. And it nowadays has to be coupled with somebody who's just too dumb to wear the protective equipment. Because uh, mm. you at least get a, you, you get a, most of it controlled with the protective equipment. So, so you support the use of that uh, uh, hard-to-wear stuff in high humidity that I've tried to wear and find difficult but do when I'm in dusty environments. You know, I used to be a volunteer fireman, and I was glad when I learned how to wear those uh, breathing uh, masks and stuff. But, yeah. Uh, so that's what the main thing is, is their chronic dust exposure. Let me put it in context for you, though. If you work in a coal mine, if you work in a factory with a lot of dust, the chances you'll get cancer from that are maybe 1% or 2%. If you smoke heavily, your chances of getting t- lung cancer are about 20%. Whoa. If you smoke and have the dust exposure, your chances go shooting way up. It's the combination of the two that's a real risk. So are there rules and regulations? I know they're cutting all the money out of all the environmental control agencies, but are there uh, – I don't see how anybody could – any employer could have somebody work in a family that's dusty, in a, in a factory that's dusty, and not require them to wear protective gear. Well, you know, I think – you know, there are always some who are going to try and slide by, but it often gets down to the level of the individual employee who says, you know, I'm not going to wear this thing. It's uncomfortable and puts it aside. Mm-hmm. Matt, are you uh, are you provided uh, some kind of uh, protective gear? Uh, we have a lot of protective gear, um, but nothing respiratory related. Really? So what kind of dust is it in the factory? I mean, I, it, it, you know, it's not like it's just swirling around us um, all the time, but uh, it's just flag dust from uh, just the constant welding over and over. And, I mean, I will say I, I think they, they do their best to, to keep it clean and, and uh, maintain things. They have filters and stuff, but I, I just wonder over long term. If you've got welding, if you're, you're welding and you're producing smoke from the welding, that is toxic, okay? Anybody that is in an area that inhales welding byproducts, needs to have appropriate gear 
because that stuff has stuff we don't even know about in it. I mean, when you when the same way with pot, when you smoke the stuff, it generates a whole new family of carcinogens and other problems that we don't even know about yet. So, um, why don't you uh, talk to your union guy or whatever, and and or whoever your supervisor is, and uh, talk uh, talk some more about this because we, you know, it it's just not worth taking a chance to, when you can wear a simple mask. Even the ones you get at Lowe's and places like that are really pretty good. And don't smoke. I mean, that's that's the overriding thing. Matt, I hope that helped and didn't upset you, but that's my thoughts, and I have to be honest. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. We're at one I'm Dr. Rick here with Dr. Ruck, and we're talking about whatever you want to talk about. It's a lot of cancer so far, and we're delighted that you're calling. Let's go to Tommy and J.S. Hey, Tommy. Hey. Did I get that right? Is it J.S.? Or Jesus? You got, you got that right, Jess, Mississippi. Where is that? <clears throat> Fifteen miles south of Brookhaven, Mississippi. Oh, it's warm. Good. Yeah. Rolling hills, huh? Rolling hills and cattle? Yeah. Beautiful places down there. What's your question? Anyway, I, I got a question, maybe a comment. I'm a 76-year-old Caucasian male. I've been smoking over 60 years, and I'm a heavy smoker. I don't seem to have any problems. And for the last 16 years, I get a routine uh, checkup every year with a chest X-ray. Did I go further than a chest X-ray? And I heard you say something about a CAT scan. Yes, the the chest X-ray is pretty clearly demonstrated to be of no use <clears throat> in finding lung cancers early. Okay, that's, that's what <clears throat> I me. want to know mainly. So you would do the CAT scan. The the you illustrate a very important point. If you have a hundred smokers who smoke two packs a day for forty years, I have only about fifteen or twenty are going to get lung cancer. Okay, that's where the genetics comes in. Okay, and so we don't we don't fully understand that yet. So obviously you're fairly lucky in that regard. If you don't have chronic lung disease as well, then you're in that small subset that don't get that. So. Um, you are very, very fortunate. The data show that the average American who smokes a pack of cigarettes a day uh, over 20 years and continues to smoke has <coughs> seven years of life lost, the average, okay? And that is, that is you're lucky, I'm, I'm, but just don't tell your grandkids it's okay to smoke. Uh, the 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 problems are not just lung cancer. It's more common cardiovascular problems, uh, strokes, uh, heart attacks, uh, peripheral vascular disease. Man, that's a terrible thing to have. You can't walk around. I mean, this this stuff is awful. It should be outlawed. And uh, people uh, like you and my family who continue to smoke need to be provided assistance. And uh, and moving off of it, even if you're old. So uh, I understand what you're saying. I respect you. Uh, the probability at this age, are you going to have any trouble with that? Uh, it's probably whatever damage has already been done. But don't tell your kids and the grandkids, look at me. I'm a oh, smoker. Wow. Didn't bother me. Okay? Oh. Do that for I'm, me. I'm very appreciative of seven six years. I don't know if I want to go away to six. No, you're 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 pretty lucky. Can I have you buy me some Powerball? Uh, 
That's tickets. Right. Tommy. That I've, never, that I've never been lucky at. <laughs> Tommy, God bless you. Yep. Thank you for your call. Man. Let's go to Vicksburg and Marsha. Hey, Marsha. Marsha, it's your turn. Okay, I'd like to ask a question about lymphedema. Some years ago, I was treated for breast cancer with uh, chemo and radiation, and a few years after that, I developed lymphedema in the arm on the side that the cancer was in. Do you do you have to continue to treat that? Have any improvements been made in the treatment? Uh, does it get so bad it doesn't get any worse or, you know, whatever? <laughs> It, it gets, you know, it's it's how much can... What is it? It's fluid in the arm. So people who have their breast removed, they go up into the armpit. Right. And they screw around with those little bitty teeny drainage tubes called right. lymph, lymphatic channels. Okay, right. all right. Mm. So it's how much fluid goes in and then how much can get out. We have a lot of fluid going into all of our organs every day. Once you interfere with that and the fluid can't get out, the arm swells. Now, for most people, if nothing else happens, if they don't have surgery on that arm, if they don't have another cancer, et cetera, it'll get to a certain place and just stay there. And unfortunately, there's not been a whole lot of change in treating existing lymphedema. I mean, we have the, the various pressure uh, devices and exercises that do it, and people do okay with that. Nowadays, however, we do less extensive surgery we don't take all the lymph nodes. We sample some of them. And so the incidence of lymphedema is much less than it used to be. Yeah, so we're not seeing nearly as much of this as we used to, Marcia. And I'm sorry you've got it. But um, there are therapists uh, that actually help people with this specialized, I don't know whether they're PTs or OTs or whatever, that really are experts on these compression devices and other techniques you can use. Have you seen one of those, uh, Marcia? Well, right after it developed, I went for a, a two-week series of treatments with, a, I believe, an occupational therapist in the cancer center at St. Dominic. Uh-huh. Well, it's, it's... not been back, and I didn't know whether, you know... No, no. I, it, it, the, the, the appliances, the, the fabrics that they're using in these appliances over the last 10 years have totally changed. So get your doctor or whatever your insurance covers, get you back to your uh, physical or occupational therapist and, and make sure it's someone that has a lot of experience in this area because they can really help. And that it, that's such a such an awful problem. I sympathize with you on it. And if you don't get what you need, send me an email at southernremedy.mpbonline.org and I will uh, help you find somebody. Thank you for your call. We've got one open line and a few minutes left. If you want to call us at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, please do so. I'm Dr. Rick with Dr. Ruck, and we're taking all calls on all topics, especially on cancer, but we'll try to uh, talk about whatever you want to. Jackie, what's going on in a wonderful place, Ocean Springs, Mississippi? You there? It's so funny. Um, I am a physical therapist. Hey, we, we've got a referral for you. <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting. I, I wasn't calling about that specifically, but I will respond to that very quickly. Please. I am a, I am a myofascial release therapist in Ocean Springs, and I treat a lot of patients post-radiation uh, therapy with uh, the problem that she was having. So the fascia, which is another word for connected tissue, has a lot of research behind it helping um, many people. Um, with these difficulties, uh, these restrictions or increased lymphedema and, and inflammation and pain. So that's just a comment I wanted to make. Uh, the second comment is um, 
There is uh, new studies now, probably starting 10 years ago, on epigenetics. Um, so those are the IEGs. And I just wanted to offer to the both of you that these, there's uh, two books, the um, Biology of Belief, written by Dr. Bruce Lipton. On, and what they're showing is, and the second book, sorry, is Dawson, Dr. Dawson Church, The Genie in Your Genes. And they're proving that our genes really are, don't have that much control over us as we used to think. So okay, Jackie, let, let me ask him to talk about a very important topic that you brought to the table. So thank you for your call. This whole idea of epigenetics is a new, well, it ain't new now, but it used to be a new concept that really does help explain, maybe, some of what's going on. So you said you have genetic factors and then there are other environmental factors over that that are called epigenetics, or what? how do you define that? Well, <clears throat> a, a gene produces a protein, and that does something, whatever it is. Uh, digests something, makes a muscle work, whatever, whatever it's set up to do. But in order for it to do that, a number of other things have to come into play to get things lined up to have that sequence work well. And it's those genes that are epigenetic genes, and they, they are not passed down in the same way. Ah. They're usually passed in the mitochondria or somewhere else in the body. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when you uh, listen to these forensic shows, sometimes they'll look for the m m mitochondrial DNA, and they can trace it through the material. Ah, that's line. why they do that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, epigenetics is an important field. Uh, a lot of work going on in that area. It's... I don't think we have a whole lot of very clear therapies yet directed at epigenetic changes. Okay, you had two. We're going to go to Lewis. Thank you for your call, Jackie. We love Ocean Springs. Um, we're going to go to Palahatchee, Palahatchee in just a minute, and Lewis and whoever else is on the line. But we have two email addresses that came to Dr. Ruck, uh, two email questions that came to our email address, southernremediampbonline.org that Dr. Ruck's going to answer. What, what were those two? Yeah, both of them deal with this issue of blastomycosis. And this is just another one of the fungi, like histoplasmosis. Uh, actually, within that same world, tuberculosis is another uh, one in that same group of uh, illnesses. And most of the time, our body handles it quite well. So, yes, it is still prevalent here. We still see it. It's not correlated with lung cancer, which was one of the questions. And the other was is uh, talking about his dad, who had a... Uh, a lesion, uh, a mass removed from his lung in the 1990s, and it turned out to be blastomycosis. And that's that's exactly what we find. It's very hard to tell. Uh, the difference on, uh, on x-ray is very hard. Uh -huh. I wrote a paper a couple of years ago. Uh, out in West, we have what's called valley fever, and it's just a different one of these fungi. And we worked up two patients absolutely by the book, expecting to have early-stage lung cancer, and both of them had valley fever. They got lucky. Yeah. So that's why you always get tissue first. People say, if you know it's cancer, why do you want to do a biopsy? Well, sometimes it ain't, and sometimes you're lucky. So uh, that's why they do the needle or open it up and look at it. Let's go to Palahatchee and Lewis. Hey, Lewis. Hey, man. Good to talk to you. Uh, good. I, a, little, a little problem. I went, uh, my uh, original doctor... I'm elderly, and I went to him. I told him I was having a little trouble. Uh, my 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 breathing had gotten harder and harder. Uh, I I don't have uh, much uh, breath. I just 
from the chair to the dining room table, I'll start breathing heavy. And uh, anyway, they ran a CT scan, and the doctor said I had scarring on my lungs. Mm-hmm. So what is that? Okay, and are, were you a smoker? I was years ago, but I hadn't smoked in 25, 30 years. And do you have heart failure, swelling of your legs, and short and difficulty laying flat? Oh, I had to sleep on a chair. Okay, there you go. We got the expert. Let him answer that. What are scars on the lungs that people are always talking about? Well, you, you've got you've got scars in the lung and in the heart. The the smoking previously uh, affected them and.